Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 15 on April 16th, 2010. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guest is Hayden Newton, the chairman of the Association of Air Ambulances in the United Kingdom. Before I introduce my guest, I want to go over some feedback from episode 14 and cover some recent air medical transport news. As some of you may have noticed, I have been having trouble for the last few days with an RSS program that I use to publish the Air Medical Today news and information from Twitter onto Facebook. I've had to switch to directly posting until the RSS company programmers figure out what is going on, as other users are having the same issue. For some reason, it is grouping the posts, then when you click on the See Similar Post tab, it not only does not expand them, they just disappear. Fortunately, this was only happening on the general Facebook wall, as all the posts are on the Air Medical Today Facebook page. I am sorry for the inconvenience for those following the news on Facebook. I had one email regarding episode 14 that said they really appreciated understanding the history of FlightWeb and in hearing Raleigh Parrish. As with every one of the interviews I do, I also learn something new, so thanks for the comment. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests. As I have done in the past, I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. Also remember that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, to be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page. Please just email me or call me if it is not. I have been trying to identify all air medical and critical care transport fan pages on Facebook so it is easier for others to find you. I did post up one new page this past week. I cannot link Facebook group pages, however, and therefore, if you are thinking of putting your program on Facebook, do use a fan page rather than a group. Contact me if you have any questions about this. I am, in fact, moving a few Facebook groups I have for sports that I do over to Facebook pages because of their increased functionality. One of the most important is that you can obtain a unique URL or website address once you have 25 fans. This makes it much easier to provide someone your Facebook page address and for them to find you. 
As mentioned in the last two episodes, I'm going to be rolling out a sponsorship program for the Air Medical Today podcast this month. I am looking for both corporate and individual sponsors, so watch for announcements and a new page on the Air Med Today website. To continue with the news and information and podcasts, I will need financial support to do so. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the air medical world. First off, I want to wish all communications staff a happy 2010 National Telecommunicators Week, which is being celebrated April 11th through 17th. Having worked with many air medical programs, I know how important the work these professionals do every day. The big news this week is the volcano eruption in Iceland. At least 100 U.S. flights have been canceled by early Thursday afternoon, with more canceled today due to the volcano eruption in Iceland. Most of the canceled U.S. flights were to or from the United Kingdom. Airports in Britain, Ireland, and Nordic countries were closed first. By late Thursday morning, France had closed 23 airports, including the Paris airports. As of this morning, the plume covered parts of Britain, Germany, Norway, Ireland, Sweden, Finland, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Russia. It's forecast to drift southeast today over northern France, Poland, and the Czech Republic before reaching Switzerland, Austria, and Hungary by midnight. The ash plume threat will continue through Sunday, April 18th for Europe, and there is not expected to be a rapid improvement in conditions. The ash cloud also affected air ambulances in parts of England, the Yorkshire Air Ambulance, the East Anglican Air Ambulance, and the Great North Air Ambulance's rescue helicopters were all grounded. All five helicopters from West Midlands Ambulance Service were unable to fly, with crews redeployed into rapid-response cars. Kent Air Ambulance said it was monitoring the situation, but would fly if necessary. A critically ill patient had to be flown from Scotland to London by military helicopter, which was the only aircraft available to make the journey. The latest report received Friday morning said that Swedish airspace is now gradually being reopened, starting in parts of the northern region, according to the Swedish National Aviation Authority. They could not say when airports in the southern half of the country, including Stockholm, would be granted permission to clear flights for takeoff. Scandinavian Air Ambulance, which operates ambulance helicopters, has decided to resume service in Lycksel. Volcanic ash can cause extensive damage to aircraft. The particles in the clouds are mostly microscopic bits of glass that can easily melt into jet engine parts, block intake lines, ding windshields, and scour aircraft bodies. While the Iceland volcano itself is not a huge deal as volcanoes go, Europe's busy air corridors are all downwind, which is what is causing all the problems. Once a cloud is in the air, forecasters can keep planes away. The trick comes in figuring out what's going to happen with the volcanoes themselves. In this case, the eruption turned violent when the red-hot magma underground changed course and started coming up directly below a glacier. The mix of magma and ice is explosive, and how long that could last is a big guess at this point. 
There is also worry that the magma from the volcano will creep underground to the east and flow into the chambers of a much larger volcano nearby, which has been unexpectedly quiet in recent decades. There are a number of stories in the show notes about the effect of the volcano on air ambulance services, and especially in the United Kingdom. In other news, the National Transportation Safety Board released its preliminary findings this week on the hospital wing helicopter crash. The preliminary report details the facts and circumstances of the accident, but does not give a probable cause of the crash. The probable cause will be released at the conclusion of the investigation, which is expected to take about 12 months. Killed in the crash were pilot Doug Phillips and flight nurses Cindy Parker and Misty Oakley Brogdon. The crew was returning to Hospital Wing's base in Brownsville early on the morning of March 25th after taking a patient from Parsons to Jackson. The helicopter crashed in a wheat field east of Haywood Industrial Park. The preliminary report says Phillips spoke to an incoming shift pilot at the base in Brownsville several times the morning of the crash and discussed the weather conditions. The other pilot was not named in the report. A front was moving in from Memphis, the two pilots noted. During the first conversation, Phillips was at the helicopter pad at Jackson-Madison County General Hospital in Jackson. Phillips told the other pilot that he figured he had about 18 minutes to get back to base in Brownsville. The pilot in Brownsville spoke to one of the nurses several times during the flight back to Brownsville. The report does not say which nurse he spoke to, however. During the last conversation, the pilot at the Brownsville base said he saw the blinking light on a radio tower to the east, about six miles away, and he told the nurse visibility was good. At that point, the nurse told the pilot at the base that the helicopter was 30 seconds out. After the pilot hung up, there was an immediate loud clap of thunder and lightning that made him jump. He looked out but did not see the helicopter and tried to call the nurse without success. Three witnesses near the accident site stated that they saw lightning and heard thunder at the time of the accident. One witness stated that it was very windy at the time, and another stated that heavy rain bands were passing through the area. Another local medical transportation company had said stormy weather was the reason it did not take a Parsons to Jackson flight offered to the company at 4.02 a.m., which was likely the flight that Hospital Wing Crew made. A link to the full NTS report can be found in the show notes. While patients, taxpayers, and lawmakers debated the impact of the health care reform law, one result of the battle is clear, a bonanza for K Street lobbyists, according to an article in Energy Publisher. About 1,750 businesses and organizations spent at least $1.2 billion in 2009 on lobbying teams to work on health reform and other issues, according to the analysis of Senate lobbying disclosure documents. Since lobbyists are not required to itemize the amount spent on each issue, the precise amount that went to health reform remains unknown. But if only 10% of the lobbying spending went towards health care reform, the amount would total about $120 million, and that's likely a record for a single year's spending on a particular issue, experts say. 
The clients who hired these firms range from the most influential industry associations to small not-for-profit advocacy groups. Many companies and organizations hired more than one of the top firms to lobby its interest. In a story that Air Medical Today has been following, the decision to move the air ambulance plane and crews from St. Anthony to Happy Valley Goose Bay will please some and upset others in communities throughout the northwest portion of Newfoundland and all of Labrador, Canada. According to an author of an article in The Labradorian, it makes perfect sense to have an air ambulance stationed in Labrador, but people are finding it very difficult to celebrate the announcement that Happy Valley Goose Bay will be getting this service for one simple reason, because people of the province generally support each other. Either way you look at it, this recent decision to move the air ambulance is a tough one for many, but hopefully in the end it will prove to be the best and improve health care for all citizens. The author said that sometimes we question and challenge decisions, but once the system is up and running and healthcare is improved, we all win. Meanwhile, the St. Anthony and Area Chamber of Commerce said that they were angered over the government's decision to move the air ambulance services out of St. Anthony. This decision will have an everlasting and devastating impact on the local economy, said Chamber President Maurice Simmons. We will lose millions of dollars each year in lost revenue from all sectors of our economy. Calling the consultant's report on which Health Minister Jerome Kennedy claimed to base his decision flawed, Mr. Simmons argued that government should put its decision on hold until the report is further analyzed and corrected. The air ambulance service was started 55 years ago in St. Anthony by Dr. Gordon Thomas in conjunction with the International Grenfell Association. It was the first in Canada. It has caused our health services to grow and gain a reputation as some of the best services in this province, thus attracting good specialists and professionals to the area, said Mr. Simmons. Healthcare is a major concern to people when we're relocating to a new area. The chamber also expressed grave concerns over the survival of the St. Anthony Airport without the air ambulance service. Netcare 911 has become South Africa's first aeromedical emergency evacuation specialist to be accredited by the European Air Medical Institute, or URAMI. URAMI approved the level of full accreditation, special care, for the fixed and rotor wing operations of NetCare 911 after a three-day on-site audit of the operations in Johannesburg and Durban, which was performed between February 25th and 27th. NetCare 911 is only the second aeromedical emergency evacuation specialist to receive this endorsement of quality within Africa. The status is also held by Kenya's AMREF Flying Doctor Service, the first non-European, non-U.S. air rescue provider to receive URAMI accreditation. A report into why an air ambulance slid off the runway in New Plymouth, New Zealand, says the pilots carried out a visual approach, which is not generally permitted at uncontrolled aerodomes. The two pilots and a medical team were flying in to pick up a patient in March 2009, but as they were landing, the right engine failed to pick up speed and the pilots were distracted trying to find the reason. The plane landed heavily and ran off the side of the runway, suffering minor damage to its tires, but no one was injured. The report says if the pilots had conducted an instrument approach, it would have likely been stable, giving them more time to deal with the engine speed 
issue. On Wednesday this week, MedFlight of Huntsville, Alabama, celebrated 25 years of service in the Tennessee Valley. More than 24,500 patients have been transported by MedFlight since its inception in 1985. The service has an accident-free flying record. MedFlight began one helicopter and now operates two and was the first accredited air ambulance program in the state. LifeFlight of Maine announced this week the renewal of their contract with Aeromed LLC as the provider of their aviation management services. The two companies have worked together since July 1998. LifeFlight of Maine owns two Augusta 109E helicopters with one based at Central Maine Medical Center in Lewiston and the other based at Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor. There was an interesting story in the Post Standard out of Syracuse, New York, about Mercy Flight Central. As president of Mercy Flight Central, Paul Hyland solicits charitable donations to keep the air medical ambulance flying in the Syracuse and Rochester areas. And as the sole shareholder of EMS Air Services, he makes a profit from the operation. The business structure presents a conflict of interest, according to Sandra Minuetti, a vice president with Charity Navigator, which monitors nonprofits across the country. The organization gave Mercy Flight a three-star rating out of four two years ago for sound physical management. That was based on the books of Mercy Flight Central, the charity, and not the EMS, the business, however. One of the most precious things that charities have is its public's trust, Minuetti said. Just the appearance that there's a conflict and that he's personally getting wealthy off this arrangement can be so damaging to a charity. Mercy Flight Central does not disclose its connection to Highland's for-profit company in the letters it sends to thousands of potential donors, nor on the charity's website. Mercy Flight usually receives about $1.5 million a year in charitable donations, according to its federal tax return, which is public. Its $7 million budget in 2008 included $5 million in reimbursements from health insurance plans. It then turns around and pays Highland's business $2.5 million a year, which is what EMS charges to lease pilots, three helicopters, and hangars to the not-profit. Highland said that he's taking a salary of $65,000 a year as president of the non-for-profit and takes the same amount as the sole shareholder of the for-profit. Mercy Flight's tax return confirms the charity's pay. Highland declined to show the business books to verify the EMS salary. Mercy Flight discloses Highland's two roles every year in its IRS filings. The return says all financial transactions between EMS Air and Mercy Flight must be approved by the Mercy Flight's board of directors. Dividing the organization this way helps to insulate Mercy Flight from civil liability. The business side buys the insurance on all the aircraft, including the $220,000 annual premium on one helicopter Mercy Flight owns. That protects the charity from catastrophic loss in the case of a major accident. It's an unusual arrangement that might work, according to Bruce Hopkins, a lawyer with the Nonprofit Law Center. Normally, if two corporations are related, then it's difficult to shift the liability to only one of them, Hopkins said. 
But here it's pretty clever because it's not really owned by the not-for-profit. It's owned by someone who's closely affiliated with the nonprofit. So they're right on the edge there, Hopkins said. When interviewed a month ago, Highland said every one of EMS Air's contracts with Mercy Flight must be competitively bid. EMS competes with other aviation companies that lease aircraft and employees, he said. But the chairman of Mercy Flight's board of directors, Neil Snedecker of Syracuse, said this charity does not seek competitive bids. The board checks the market rates every three years and compares them to EMS. Competitive bidding would be too time-consuming, and we're very confident that the rates we're getting from Paul's company are very competitive, he said. Even if EMS provides services below the market rate, the appearance of conflict should be enough for Mercy Flight officials to find another way, Minuetti said. The arrangement between the for-profit and not-profit is legal as long as it's disclosed in Mercy Flight's public filings, according to a spokesman for the state attorney general's office. David Van Slyke, an associate professor at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, said that Mercy Flight Central's structure appears to be bad governance. Even if the nonprofit uses competitive bidding, no other potential provider could possibly have the inside information that its president does, said Van Slyke, who has studied nonprofits for a decade. Christopher Easley, managing director of the Air Medical Operators Association, said no aviation companies in its organization use Highland's model. The group represents 11 aviation companies that operate 730 helicopters across the country. Officials with three other air ambulance companies operating in New York, Pennsylvania, Maine, and Massachusetts said they were either a full nonprofit or a full for-profit, but not both. They knew of none set up like Highland's. Almost 20 years ago, Highland mortgaged his farm and sold his fence, construction, and car rental business so he could start Mercy Flight Central. Mercy Flight Central, headquartered in Cananugua, has transported more than 10,000 patients over the past 19 years. Donations help buy the one helicopter that Mercy Flight, the nonprofit, owns. About $3 million in contributions went to buy a $5 million helicopter. Of those donations, half came from a Rochester businessman. Mercy Flight also received state grants, more than $625,000 since 2006. Some of the grant money paid Mercy Flight's medical personnel. Remember this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is incorporated into the Facebook page. Today I am interviewing Hayden Newton, the chairman of the Association of Air Ambulances in the United Kingdom. Hayden is currently the Chief Executive of the East of England Ambulance Service, National Health Services Trust, where he was appointed in February 2008. He was the former operational manager at Petersborough Ambulance Station before taking up a directorship with the Scottish Ambulance Service in 1988. Hayden returned to England as Director of Performance for the Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Ambulance Service in 2000, and then was appointed Chief Executive of Kent Ambulance Service in 2003. After Kent, Hayden moved to a national post at the Department of Health, leading the Call Collect initiative. 
Hayden has his postgraduate diploma at the University of Glasgow in management studies and is a paramedic. He lives with his wife and son in Cambridge. Welcome to the podcast, Hayden, and thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Ed, thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to share with your listeners um, experiences, uh, our experience of the Air Ambulance Association and Air Ambulances in the UK. Well, we're, we're anxious to, to learn. Before we get into that, though, I've been getting many news reports out of Europe and England regarding airports being closed and air medical services uh, being grounded due to the volcanic ash from the eruption in Iceland. Are all the services seeing some disruption, or is the ash affecting only some areas of the UK? Yes, um, CAA have offered advice, um, that's the Civil Aviation Authority, which is technically grounded across the whole of the UK, um, fixed-wing aircraft and also air ambulances at uh, this particular time as well. I understand it's currently been reviewed in terms of lifting that, um, but it's under constant review at the moment. So all services have been affected to a greater or lesser extent by this, uh, this, this current position. Is it visible? Is the volcanic ash visible, or is it in upper levels? No. Well, where I am, I'm just outside of Bedfordshire at the moment in in England, and uh, there's nothing to be seen of it. I see. Is this specifically affected your service too, or are you grounded right now? Yeah, yeah. We've got four aircraft, and those aircraft have been grounded um, all day and remain grounded at the moment. Wow. Is it? Uh, have they said uh, how long it's going to take for? the ash to to move with the winds further inland no they haven't they've agreed to they the caa have said they're going to review the situation later on i see um i think it's hope that by tomorrow morning we're back into a normal operation again yeah i, I was reading some of the stories and it's uh, that volcanic ash can be very very dangerous especially with the engine flame out i didn't realize yeah. that so that's that is very dangerous i know it's affecting a lot of the airports here in the U.S. with people trying to get to the U.K. and places in Europe. And it's also causing quite a lot of um, trouble at, um, at railway stations as well, where people are trying you know, to make their own travel arrangements by train travel as opposed to air. That's it. And uh, we're seeing that the big, you know, I've just come back from London, that the um, King's Cross station is very busy today with people trying to make alternative arrangements. Mm-hmm. And so you're, like, when you're down for weather, you're having to move patients by ground then? We are. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we have a network across the country of, of very good road ambulances, very sophisticated in terms of the equipment, the vehicle design, and we can cope with this. But, of course, the Air Ambulance Service does provide a, an excellent service and one we wouldn't want to be out without for very long. Right, exactly. Well, I hope things clear up soon. Thank you. I wanted to, before we get into the Air Ambulance Association in the UK, I wanted to talk to you and uh, so you can tell our listeners about how the UK Air Ambulance System works. So I worked up some questions uh, over that, and I think uh, having you explain that would be very helpful to people. And, And first off, talk about the 12 NHS or National Health Service Ambulance Trust and how they were formed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, should we start with the Ambulance Trust first, and then that will set the scene in terms of coming on to talk about the helicopters. Yes. We have 11, 11, uh, 11 ambulance services service trusts. They were formed, um, they were reduced from 31 to 11 um, just four years ago. 
following a major review carried out by the Department of Health and the National Director of Ambulance Services, a colleague of mine, Peter Bradley. And they were designed to add more capacity and more strategic um, capacity to what were very small ambulance services in those days, services with income which equaled um, £40 million sterling. And if you take my service, the East of England Ambulance Service, of which I'm the chief, chief executive officer, we have an income now which is of £230 million sterling. We're a significant organisation covering over 5,500 square miles. Now, I accept that to where you are probably in America, that doesn't seem a lot, but we deal with around 700,999 calls a year in this service alone. Wow. So the purpose of, of generating just 11 services was to, to generate more strategic capacity and growth and potential within these bigger organisations and also to benefit some economy of scale in terms of enabling money to come from back office managerial functions to be back, reinvested back into, into patient care. Now around that we have 18 air ambulance charities, but between them they have 30 helicopters which are either leased or owned. And uh, we also then have colleagues in the Scottish Ambulance Service who have not just rotary wing, but they also have fixed wing aircraft as part of their ambulance, air ambulance service response. So it's, it's a system which works through charitable donations, but also some schemes funded directly through ambulance services as aircraft which are actually owned by ambulance services, but the majority are run by charities, and I have to say, um, Ed, very, very successfully run by charities. I see, I see. Was, in setting up the trust, and I thought, actually, I thought on your website it said 12 ambulance trust. Is that include Scotland? If you include Scotland, would that be 12 then? No, well, that Scotland does include, you're absolutely right, does include, um, it makes it 12, but of course the Department of Health jurisdiction over the ambulance service does not extend to Scotland. Right. 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 From the so the Department of Health just covers the English, the English ambulance services, which okay. is eleven. I got you. And were the the trusts? I mean, because the National Health Service has trusts for other areas of your healthcare system. So this is an outgrowth of that. So it's the ambulance trust. And does this cover the ground ambulance component also? Yeah, it covers more of the ground ambulance component. Than what it does because of the air ambulance component. Mm -hmm. And if you take my service, for example, I have 3,500 clinical staff on the ground um, providing 24-hour 7 clinical cover. I have over 1,000 uh, road ambulances and over 250 fast response vehicles in this particular patch. So the dominant factor for ambulance trust is the ground resources. But saying that, air ambulances run by charities provide a very, very useful um, um, contribution towards uh, the service we're providing in terms of transportation, particularly critical care transportation to patients uh, across all of the services. And we have such a network um, of air ambulances up and down the country, Wales, Northern Ireland, um, Scotland and the English services, that we have a great deal of capacity which we can access should we find that one particular area is very, very busy we can bring air ambulances in from other parts of the country to help. Right. And so were the trusts set up by population and geography? Was that one of the deciding factors? I mean, in looking at the map, it seemed that way to me. Yes, they were. I mean, broadly, all trusts are 
just about equal in terms of population size and geography and and, and, and also the size of the income. I mean, mine, as I say, is the second biggest in the country, um, but it varies only slightly. I mean, if you go back to the smallest trust, which is um, Great Western, which is Wiltshire and Gloucestershire, Merge is, is still bigger than what the single units used to be and includes Avon, of course, now at this particular time. Um, so, yeah, that's based on generally on population and land mass. And also the other thing we did look at as well is call volumes. For example, how many calls would these organisations respond to um, in a year on average in terms of a 999 service? Okay. So what, Hayden, what is the government governance structure of the trusts, and who do they report to then? Right. Well, we have we have a trust board, which comprises of executive directors and non-executive directors, um, and the ambulance service trust board. Um, the directors are appointed by a special committee. The trust board report into what we call strategic health authorities which are um, linked into the Department of Health. That's the department which oversees the policy issues associated with, um, with ambulance services, including some issues associated with the air ambulance service as well. Um, in terms of ensuring good clinical services and safe systems of work, there is another independent body which has legal powers to close us down, um, and that called the Care Quality Commission and they ensure that we operate as best as possible safe systems of work and very very good standards of clinical care and clinical quality. Is that through the National Health Service also then? It's also through the National Health Service and, and again they link into the Department of Health. They have some standards which we must meet in terms of every year standards of patient safety and response time standards and of course they we are heavily assessed against those standards and currently um, my particular trust is is the second best performing out of the 11 ambulance service against a range of different standards which get harder every year you know they're pushing for continuous improvement and they're ramped up year after year after year to get much more um, demanding and making and, and getting services and organizations to continually improve the service to deliver to our patients and i don't have a problem with that who, who actually comes up with the standards? Um, the standards usually come from the Department of Health. The standards are usually developed in dis uh, following discussions with, with clinical leaders around, and, and also the standards are based on audit and information we're getting back from our patients in terms of how services could improve. I see. So, uh, yeah, here in the U.S., there's, you know, the Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems, um, UK, you don't have something like that, but the but the National Health Service is doing that. They're well, the National Health, yeah, they are, in, and particularly the air ambulance aspect of um, ambulance trusts and the charities is also being governed by the civil uh, by the Care Quality Commission. Right. The flying aspect, the legality of the flying and the operation itself is through the Civil Aviation Authority, but the patient care side and the clinical care side is overseen by the Care Quality Commission. Yeah. Very similar because here the FAA would do the aviation piece. Right? Um, what determines how many ground and air ambulances are authorized in each trust? Is it what is that based on exactly? 
Yeah, I, I have to say, I think there's more, more of an academic approach in terms of ground ambulances and also response vehicles in ambulance trusts as what there is to, in, in terms of the number of helicopters which we require. Uh, we work on the basis of the core volume, we work on the basis of drive zones, and we work on the basis of the thing called unit hour utilisation, which mm. determines the number of road vehicles we need. And, and in many senses, Ed, we're running the what you would see as the American high performance system in terms of delivering a very, very exacting um, response time target, which is the most exacting target worldwide. It's called Call Connect, and it's extremely challenging. The clock starts to tick on the eight minutes as soon as the call is received by the ambulance control room. Even if we haven't answered the call, the, the clock is starting to tick in terms of our response time. So we've got to be really swift in terms of picking that call up and dispatching our vehicles. Right. Now, that same standard doesn't apply to our helicopters. Helicopters are in the main used to back up road resources on some very difficult, challenging jobs, but particularly also looking at, at aspects around critical care transfer, where we need to move at speed um, a seriously ill patient over a long distance and with um, in, at the same time being able to maintain life support. Now, the, establishing the number of helicopters in the region um, is often brought about by well-meaning people who start to fundraise and they raise enough money um, in, in the ambulance regions to establish helicopters. And, you know, this is a real big issue for members of the public. People see some very, very large operational areas now of which ambulance services are running. For example, mine's five and a half thousand square miles and see helicopters as part of the solution in terms of getting rapid um, access to emergency medical care. And our experience has been that there is a role for helicopters in an area of this size. But there isn't a case made by either the ambulance service or the Department of Health for establishing a helicopter in a certain patch. It mainly comes from the goodwill of some very enthusiastic and influential people around fundraising to kick this off. But, but Hayden, if, if I came in and said I started fundraising and had some money and opened up a service right next door to you, could I do that? Yes, you could. Hmm. Um, but I, but I, I would hope that before doing so, before the fundraising started, that people would come to have a discussion with me, you know, as the head of the ambulance service, but also other people, what we call our primary care trusts, who fund the ambulance service, about the funding implications associated with me having to provide clinical staff on the helicopter. Right. Almost like at certain states here in the U.S. have certificate of need that you have to prove that there's a need for it. Other states do not. I mean, in fact, that's a very big argument in the U.S. with uh, aviation services because it is similar on you know how ground ambulance services are organized and how they're controlled. So that, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, is there generally one air ambulance company per trust with maybe several locations or bases if needed, or are there some that have multiple companies? As you said, if you know the fundraisers are successful. Yeah. I, the, the most I know in an ambulance region, there's two. Okay. Um, and, and it's a mixed picture in, in the in some localities as one, but there's also two. A number of um, regions have got two independent charities which are fundraising and, and do end up working together, which they need to do, of course, because um, 
you know, there's very little point in pinching somebody else's donations. Um, and, and they do work together, they work together very well. And of course, ambulance services around governance need to ensure that but if there's two independent charities that both of those charities are working. We have other cases of course where we've got one charity but three or four helicopters run by that one charity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Who provides uh, the aviation services um, and that would be like the pilots uh, mechanics uh, is is that up to each service or are there companies that provide these services uh, like here in the United States there's some big what are called part 135 operators that provide those services under contract to hospitals yes yeah I mean the com but there's, there's a couple of options here that uh, but in the main the charities would go to an organization and let me just pick one by chance such as Eurocopter and probably could lease the aircraft or they could buy the aircraft mm -hmm. but if they lease the aircraft part of the lease package would be that they provide the company provide the pilot but also not just the pilot but the maintenance the maintenance staff the maintenance schedule and also the hangaring facility as well okay so really what charities would do would provide the funding enable the aircraft to keep in the air basically with the um, operators providing all of the critical services needed to keep that aircraft in the air. I think the charities think that that side to do that themselves is pretty complicated and of course regulation from the Civil Aviation Authority and the air operators license which they're required to have is very very clear about standards and the regulations are very very tough as they should be about what percentage run their own programs versus contract, you know? Um, I think very, very few run their own, most run contract. I would think probably 90% um, run contract. Okay. What generally are the types of helicopters used, and in, in, is there a requirement in the UK for having dual engines? No, there's not. It's a mixed picture on both the dual engines and also the models used. Mm -hmm. um, found that um, most charities are moving away from the early days of the Bolco, the one with the clamshell doors and you know um, loading from the through the clamshell doors, preferring mm -hmm. to side load now, and uh, believe it makes it easier for taking patients um, on who have got a lot of equipment attached to them. They're on life support, but also makes the deplaning somewhat easier under some circumstances. Um, the, the range of helicopters used are the MD-902 Explorer, mm -hmm. um, then the Bolco 105, uh, the EC-135, and the BK-117, and the uh, Augusta 109. So very much a mixed picture from around the country. And I think it depends on very much, of course, what the financial deal is, because the costs can vary significantly on lease costs, subject to the size of the aircraft. For example, if you compared costs of something such as a Dolphin compared to um, to a Bolco 105, it, it's often down to affordability. Um, but but very much as a, there is a lot of standardisation around the kit inside because the work has already been done with the Civil Aviation Authority to get licensed to use certain pieces of equipment and that's been approved. So all of the equipment, the life-saving equipment inside it has to be approved by the Civil, a Civil Aviation Authority sure. before the aircraft can be allowed to fly. Yeah. And then on some of the stuff we're dealing with, we're dealing with intensive care-based equipment, which is extremely expensive and very complex. And to get that approvals through CAA, it 
can take some time. So it has led to a lot of standardisation and some very, very good safe systems to work around that equipment. Yeah, I was, I was looking at your website, and it seems like uh, all the aircraft you mentioned, it seemed like there was a lot of 135s there too. It, it yeah. seemed to be the predominant one that I could find. But, it, it uh, is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how many pilots are on board? Is that governed at all? Is it single pilot, dual pilot, or are there programs that some that fly yeah. both ways? Yeah, it's a single pilot operation. Okay. Um, we've got in the system on the network of our ambulances is 60 pilots, but it's all single pilot flying. They don't fly at night, by the way. That's not because they can't. Um, they don't fly at night because of the costs, the fundraising costs, but also issues associated with landing sites, which is still a, a big issue in the UK, which hasn't been completely resolved. We haven't got the network of landing sites that we would like across across the country. And um, so night flying, particularly around stuff on secondary missions, uh, doesn't happen. And of course, on primary missions, it doesn't either. Okay. So on a, does that include both an inner facility transfer as well as an on a scene? Yeah, that's primary and secondary. Wow. Okay. Um, and if we if, if we're required to do a transfer, a critical care transfer by air, we would use the search and rescue. Okay. So that is, yeah, that would answer one of my questions then. So you've probably not adopted night vision goggles then? No. Yeah. No. Okay. And it's down to funding the, you know, the operation 24-7 um, as opposed to um, daylight hour only flying. Right. How many of the programs fly IFR? I don't know the exact number, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, I would think probably three quarters. Okay. So they're trained to those standards. But that's not a requirement yes. either? No. Oh, okay. No. No, and many of the pilots on these aircraft are ex-military pilots, uh, search and rescue or army, because the type of work they're involved with, particularly on stuff on primary, um, primary missions, I think relates very much to their experience from where right. they were before they joined. Same in the same in the U.S. Most of the pilots yeah. come out of the military. Well, let's uh, switch gears a little bit. Um, I, I follow a lot of the uh, aeromedical stories for Air Medical Today, and there are several. I mean, daily at least four to five stories that come from the U.K. about fundraising uh, for their service. Um, are, is there any funding at all from the National Health Services, or are all operational costs from fundraising alone? Um, the medical crew on the aircraft are funded by the NHS. And if you take one helicopter, it costs the NHS roughly £250,000 sterling per year for putting paramedics on. Obviously, it's more cost should it be... Um, a critical care paramedic or a uh, clinician doctor or consultant. Mm -hmm. So that aspect is funded by the NHS through agreements with their people who commission the 999 service in ambulance regions, but the other running costs associated with the helicopter are met by the charities. I see. So does that include administrative costs too then? Yeah, yeah. So the setup and the running of the charity is actually covered by the charity fundraising. Okay. And of course, they, they have to meet requirements under the Charities Commissions Act 
before they can be established as a charity. So that that would determine, too, on one of my prior questions, because if the, the National Health Service is picking up the salaries of the clinical staff, then obviously they don't want a, a number of services in one area, right, mm. and, and duplicating services. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the other part is then how – does the service determine whether they want to fly with an advanced paramedic or, or a physician? Or is um, it the service? It, it's discussions. It's really what the NHS believes needed in a region. Okay. I think that it depends upon what um, specialist hospital facilities you've got within the region, which often leads to how you're going to do, um, you know, what does the um, clinical input to the air crew look like? We are broadly leading towards a HEMS model, and the HEMS model in the UK is doctor and consultant-led, supported by a and, and working alongside with, with critical care paramedics. And that's the model which is coming out as the model of excellence at the minute, and which many charities are um, aspiring to, and, and we see great benefit in that in terms of the patient's experience. I see. So is the usual crew then, is it dual paramedic? with the pilot on board? No, the usual, we, we're seeing more and more now where we've got a critical care paramedic working with a doctor, an A&E an doctor, A&E trained based doctor, or an A&E trained based consultant. Okay. That's a model we're moving much more to. But the, but yeah, my, my point is there's two, clinician, there's two clinicians on board. Yes, there is. Yeah, there okay. Is. Yeah. Some of the services, and you've alluded to this, but I want to make sure the listeners understand this, some of the services operate under a provider-operator charity status and some under a funding from a, a grant-giving charity. Tell our listeners the difference in the percentage of programs operating under each of these models. Well, all of the charities in the, in the UK have to operate under the Charity Commission requirements. Um, and they can't be established as a charity and they, unless they meet certain requirements which are assessed by the Charities Commission. And that's the only regulatory body they have to work under for fundraising. But where you come to look at the quality of service, of course, the Care Quality Commission also applies to helicopter service. So the rigor exercise in the NH for hospital trusts, so we've got the Charity Commission looking after the charity aspect and we've got the Care Quality Commission ensuring that the clinical care and patient safety aspect is also being best protected as well. I see. But um, I, I guess my question was more, there, there are some uh, charities that actually operate the helicopter and other ones get funding from a charity, correct? Um, no, no. What okay. happens, the, the charities fundraise their own money to run the aircraft, in all cases. Um, they will get donations brought in um, from other organizations, but not from charities. Charities don't give to charities. Uh, no, well, it was, in, it was on uh, the paper that was written on your website. And um, in other words, I could set up a charity and not actually run the air ambulance, but I could fund an air ambulance that was a separate organization versus the charity becoming the operator of the air ambulance also. 
Yes, yes, you could. You could run that model, but still that arrangement would have to be approved by the Charities Commission. Sure. So you couldn't just sort of wake up one morning and say, look, I want to be a charity and raise money for fun to, to raise a helicopter for somebody right. else to run. Um, you'd still have to meet the Charity Commission requirements. Okay. But yeah, you're right, you could. Do the ground ambulances have to also fundraise, or is this just for the air ambulance? No, it's just for the air ambulances. Um, ground ambulance resource and uh, it is um, paid for by by the Department of Health mm-hmm. through taxation. And to give you an example, um, my the clinical staff ambulances and response vehicles in my trust cost around about a hundred and seventy-five million pounds sterling a year. I see. Is there a reason for that, Hayden, and how that developed that way, that the National Health Service didn't pick up air ambulance as a, as a service that they would fund entirely? Yeah, I, I think the reason is, um, like all aspects of public money, we need to account for public spending. Um, it is money that comes from taxation. And I think if you looked at the hard facts of the number of missions and the costs associated with running a helicopter, um, some people could probably say, well, that's not a good use of, of public funded money. And also the local people who fundraise do feel that they're doing something much more for their local area, you know, and they can have a say in the involvement. They can be on, you know, the board of trustees actively involved in fundraising. If it was much more centrally driven, that probably wouldn't happen. So they do feel that if they're putting money in collection tins, they're actually getting something for their own local community of which they can have a real and very, very powerful say in. Interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, there's, there are some parallels to the, how the U.S. has developed those services too. Yeah. Is there any billing at all of air ambulance services to patients? No, the only thing we would bill for is if you didn't have a medical need for transport, technically by air ambulance, but you, for example, said, well, look, I'd like to be flown because I've got a bad back on a helicopter from Scotland to Cambridge to get my physiotherapist to sort my back out because I need to be moving very quick. We wouldn't class that as a justifiable use and we would say, look, if you want to do that, you know, you would have to pay for that uh, air ambulance mission. But that, to be honest with you, is very, very rare. Mm-hmm. If we turn out and respond by helicopter to you because we've been um, asked to respond and find that we're not needed or that you don't need to travel by air ambulance, there's no billing to follow. Okay. What if the patient is uh, not a citizen of the UK? doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, in, in this country, you're covered by the NHS and we would respond. Right. Um, many of the programs in the U.S. have started critical care ground programs where they have the same crew configuration that they have in the air that, uh, as they have uh, on the ground now in this, in this critical care unit. Uh, do you have similar services? Is there a class in between what would be uh, your typical ground service or ALS service um, and your helicopter where you would have a critical care ground? Yeah, we do. We have we, we have um, the next level up from a paramedic is a critical care paramedic. Okay. And it's a model we're running on the ground. It's a model, it's part of the HEMS model I sort of spoke about earlier, 
we see we want to lead in with all the with all the helicopters um, to have critical care paramedics working as ground teams, but also working as uh, helicopter teams as well. Okay. Let's go into the specific fundraising methodologies. Tell us how each service goes about fundraising, uh, and this would be the charities, including what are similar ways they go about it, and then perhaps maybe some new innovative methods that you've seen. Yeah, um, I think broadly the similar ways around um, lottery, uh, local lottery, which is a very popular way of raising money. Mm-hmm. There's also the issues associated with donations, collection tins, and also um, advertising in, in, in the media or sponsorship to advertise in the media. Uh, and one of the things that uh, has grown quite a lot for the charities, of course, is legacy. Um, some of the charities have been left some fairly significantly large donations through as legacies and people who have died mm-hmm. uh, for a particular charity. Um, one of the other things which is quite interesting, which is a new innovation around fundraising, is looking at sponsorship and linking in what we would call some cross-market branding with, you know, the rugby football union club in the UK and, and, and air ambulances. And what does that do? Well, one of the things, we get some very good positive publicity by being um, having a lot of advertising at the international rugby events. And one of the other organisations which has really emerged as being a supporter of air ambulance charities and funding is what we call the Equestrian Society. And because we do use, you know, we, we attend with helicopters on a large number of calls where horse riders have fallen off and sustained some fairly serious injuries. So it's, it's um, somewhat similar. I know in Australia they do a lot of that too where there's sponsorship Are, have you gotten into any of the ones where it's uh i think they have like even some of the tv companies uh, uh fuel companies and that type of thing yeah yeah we have we've looked at um uh, bbc in this country uh-huh. and some very positive stuff and we would charge or the air ambulance charity would charge the bbc for doing filming with the air crew because they're getting film footage and you know some costs running but the other thing we've done as well, which is well worth thinking about, you know, Ed, is we've got a very, very charismatic and popular patron. And uh, he's Sir David Jason, if you remember Del Boy and A Touch of Frost, very popular TV programmes. He's the patron of the Association of Air Ambulance uh, Services and and very um, a good figurehead, which, is encourage, which encourages people to make donations to their local air ambulance charges. And what we've done with Sir David Jason is he's provided us with a podcast and also we've had some very powerful and very, very excellent um, posters drawn up and people can access our website to get a podcast from Sir David Jason talking about the role of air ambulances and he's a very enthusiastic patron. He's a helicopter pilot by profession. And, and very supportive of the network of air ambulances around the country. Wow, that's wonderful. That is a great idea. I, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can listen to those. I, I have, a, to have to ask you about a story I've seen several times, and, and it's made me chuckle every time I've uh, read it. Uh, it is about, and this is about fundraising, it's about women donating their bras to support their local air ambulances. I guess, how exactly does this raise funds? 
I, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, we did, we did, you mentioned to me about some sort of bizarre ideas about fundraising. This is <laughs> probably right. one of the most. I'm not sure if people can buy them afterwards or whatever, but uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it is a novel idea, but um, it probably works for some and doesn't work for others, really. You know, <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, I was just wondering what they do because I can't imagine uh, that's a resale item. So, it, you know, like, uh, no, like well, a clothing donation. I mean, okay, yeah, we, we, we are linked into clothing recycling organisations. So if people have got clothes to recycle, you know, by the tonnage, ambulance charities are paid by the clothing recycle companies to um, for taking away uh, used clothing. So I think that's probably where it's coming from. Yeah, I've seen some of those stories, and there was one just recently where the gentleman worked for another charity and was stealing the bags from the... The air ambulance service. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a very cutthroat and competitive element of of what's going on in this country at the moment in terms of the uh, recycling of clothes. Right. Let's let's talk about the Air Ambulance Association. When was it formed? It was formed, as we know it now, um, two years ago, um, and it was as a consequence of both the air ambulance charities. And ambulance services not getting on very well together. I see. Um, was there specific things that needed to be addressed? Yeah, I think it was issues around governance. How do we govern the operations? It was issues around tasking and deployment. It was the issues around the charities wanting one thing and the ambulance services wanting something else. And somebody recognised that we need to bring a body together in the UK which will get some commonality um, around how um, helicopters will be used and deployed um, in the UK. And of course, from that came out the framework document for air ambulances, and a number of working groups have been established, which have now been set up and are working exceptionally well um, across the Air Ambulance Association with both charities and also ambulance services. And a lot of the friction and a lot of the lack of knowledge and a lot of the um, worries about personal agendas has just 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 gone away, and it's a real good feel about the association now and about both charities and ambulance services working together. I see. So that was the the main uh, issue. Is the board then made up of folks from the charities and the services? Yes, it is. It's made up both um, of the eighteen air ambulance charities and representatives from. Um, 11 of the ambulance services. Um, if people join the AAA, the Association of Air Ambulance Services, the membership fee is £1,300 a year. They can send one representative to each of our meetings and also to the AGM and conference as well. And the other thing we've been able to do, talking about critical care, talking about urgent and emergency care, is to link in through the association and through me to the Department of Health so we can attract um, good involvement from the department, from what we call the czars involved in those work areas to ensure that air ambulances had real value to their local communities and also to the NHS in general. Mm -hmm. Are, are there uh, educational programs that you put on too? Yeah, we do. We link, we link with national schemes. One, one at the moment we're, we're working with is, um, is on heart, is, to th is, is think heart. Um, and, and our, our, the Air Ambulance Service can make a contribution. We do what we call cross-market branding. We share logos. 
Um, if we're picking up issues of good practice, we want to share, we'll share good practice. If we're picking up issues of concern, we'll share issues of concern. If we've got recommendations we'd like to put in around training and education to members of the public, to other clinical staff or to CAA or operators in general, we will do that. And what we're in the process of organising now is an operators event so we can get together with the operators and discuss with them some of the issues around how we want to see our ambulance services develop in the future, particularly specification stuff around equipment, deployment, aircraft design, etc., all to benefit the patient. Right. And, and some of that, Hayden, is in the frame, framework for high-performing air ambulances services, which I, I know I'd, I've read through. That was published in August 2008, and that's a document that uh, can be downloaded from your website. Yeah, it is. It is, and uh, you know, please have a look at it. I think it's a it's a real step forward in the right direction. It has brought, as I say, brought organisations together and given some and given some structure and framework with which those organisations can work. Right. You serve uh, as the chairman of the organisation, and I believe you're the second one now. Right? Is that is that position yeah. a one year position? Yes, it's a one year position, and really how it's come about. Um, out of the 11 English ambulance services, each chief executive has a national role. And my national role, of which I'm held to account for by the Department of Health and the National Director of Ambulance Services, which is Peter Bradley, um, I pick up operations in England, which includes helicopters. And much of my work is around operations and preparation for things like H1N1, but particularly helicopters figure very prominently within the operational agenda, and that's a role I'll, um, and, and I take over the chair. The chair is shared between one year the charity and one year the ambulance service, and, and I pick I the chair up this year. And next year, of course, it will be the charity, and that person taking that chair will be Simon Gray, who's the chief executive of the East Anglian Air Ambulance Service. Okay. Are there any paid staff of the association, or is it totally volunteer at this point? Uh, it's totally volunteered. Um, the work of the association is beginning to grow, as it should. Uh, we are looking at establishing our own dedicated office, and I think we will end up eventually having to having to appoint and somebody to administer the association, because I know from my experience I've got a team of people supporting me in my regional but also national role and some of that includes our ambulance work that um, it's getting bigger and I think there'll come a time where we have to think of getting some uh, dedicated administrative supporting to to um, assist the chair in managing this organization right as it um, as it gets bigger I think that's exactly how yeah. the Association of Air Ambulance uh, services was in the US yeah um, what do you see there? You've already had a number of uh, accomplishments, I think, just getting people together, the, your framework document. What do you see uh, for the future? What are the, some things that you're working on? Um, one of the real big ones is managing the regulation around assessment with the Care Quality Commission, um, and, and that's critically important, I know, mm -hmm. for the charity. The next one is on tasking and deployment under you know, the operational work stream. And the next one for me, which is really important here, Ed, is clinical governance. How to ensure that consistency, consistently across uh, the UK, they, we've got a system in place which is safe and best for patients. 
So if you ride in an air ambulance from East Anglia to one in the northeast, how do we ensure that you'll get treated the same way to the high standards? And that's what we're endeavouring to do. Yeah, yeah. How does the Air Ambulance Association link with uh, other international associations? Have you reached out to other ones in Europe and Asia and also with the Association of Aeromedical Services here in the U.S.? Certainly um, in Europe, yes, we've attended their AGMs and, 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 and events and we have links there. And also they come across to this country for our AGM and conference um, annually as well. Um, other than that, I think that's just where we are at the moment. Very keen to establish other uh, international links as well, mm -hmm. because I think we've got a lot that we'd like to see, we'd like to share with you. And I bet you've done a lot in your country that we could pick up some best benefit from. So, and you know, getting the website established, getting the AAA set up, getting it working much more effectively. Um, now gives us a scope to expand into new, into new horizons and into new countries as well. Yeah, I, I've always been a big proponent. I served uh, for two years as the president of our, uh, which is like the chair position, the elected position of the Association of Aeromedical Services. And we have now for years had a uh, policy of reaching out on an international basis because I, I think you're absolutely right. We have a lot to learn from each other on how things are done. Um, yeah. It's not just one way is, is best. There's a lot of different ways. There is. And why, why reinvent the wheel? You know, if somebody's yeah, exactly. come up with a better, better solution, hey, let's see it. Right. Well, as you know, the U.S. air ambulance system has been plagued by crashes, just one a couple of weeks ago, 2008 being our worst year in history. How many air ambulance crashes have there been in the U.K.? I looked back and I couldn't find anything recently. Has there been? Yeah, I mean, yes, there's been one. Um, it was a tragic accident in which the complete air crew and the medical crew um, lost their lives as well. It happened in Kent. Mm. I think it goes back about 15 years ago, and that's been the only one, to the best of my knowledge. Was that related to any certain factor when they reviewed no, it? I can't, no, I can't remember. I wouldn't want to say... Okay. Uh, what it might have been, but um, no, I, I can't. I can't recall what was um, deemed after the, uh, the, investi the investigation by the air uh, crash team to be the cause of the accident. Right. Do you think uh, not having the night operations makes the difference? I think it does to some degree, particularly on um, you know some of the primary missions and some of the areas of which we would require to pull helicopters in at night. I think it reduces the uh, the risk of more accidents happening, yeah. And of course aircraft have got safer. The Civil Aviation Authority are very stringent in terms of aircraft design and regulation. Training's got better. Um, and, you know, we, we're much better at managing risks associated with running air ambulance services. And I think that's all helped. But uh, I don't think we can probably compare to the States. You guys are running a flying night ops. We're not. It's really a bit of, bit of apples and oranges, really, isn't it? It is, and I think that is certainly one of the factors that people point to are that a lot of the the uh, crashes are at, at night, um, and uh, you're going into you know whether it's hitting wires or um, you know going into terrain you know especially on a scene uh, that things aren't set up properly. So, but it's yeah. still looking for that uh, answer. There's a lot of you know. If you see all the publications, there's a lot of stuff out there. 
Yeah, yeah, and we're, we're, we're looking at doing a piece of work on that. Um, we, we call it deconfliction in this country. Um, we're doing a piece of work on the back of the paper from a national policing improvement agency around um, issues around landing and taking off at scenes of incidents at primary care mission, uh, primary missions. And we're working that through with our operations work stream of the AAA at the moment, which is another piece of work. Okay. Let's talk about your service, uh, the East of England Ambulance Service. Um, your, you serve as chief executive. Uh, how long has it been in operation and how is it governed? Yeah, service has been in operation as it stands now for four years. Um, I am the what's called in, in, uh, the accountable officer. Anything goes wrong, I get in trouble. Anything goes right, nobody says anything to me. <laughs> but, okay. That's, That's the truth. <laughs> And, and um, but I mean, a fantastic job. Uh, no, sorry, it's not a job, it's a way of life. You yep. know, um, I've been in this career for a long, long time. I was a paramedic years ago, now currently out of practice, so I won't pretend anything different. Um, and we're governed by a trust board. We have a board I have a chair to report to. We have a board of executive and non-executive directors which are appointed. We're held to account to, by deli for the delivery of standards and targets by the Strategic Health Authority who link into the Department of Health and the Care Quality Commission, of course, govern how we manage um, our business in terms of patient safety, um, patient risk and risk-related issues as well. The governance in an organisation like this is very, very tight and we have, a, have other services. We could be subject to a review by up to sort of 15, 20 other agencies through internal auditors, external auditors, other review bodies, uh, if that happens. So we're governed very, very tightly. Okay. And were you actually the first chief executive then of the organization? No. No, this, no I wasn't. No, my, my colleague, um, uh, who was a GP, took this organization over but had to retire through um, ill health because of a, of a very serious and, and disabling back condition. And I, I took over then I see. Um, came in as an interim came in as an interim initially for two days a week then the post was advertised and I went through a competitive selection process um, and was offered the post because you've you've actually served I know from the introduction in several services around the country and uh, in Scotland correct yeah yeah I worked some some time in Scotland um, I left the Scottish Ambulance Service I was um, a director in Scotland, you know, worked in some lovely areas in the Highlands and Western Isles, worked in Glasgow, worked in Edinburgh, and um, then moved down to Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire as a director of then the Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Ambulance Service before it merged into the east of England. I see. Of course, as chief executive of the Kent Ambulance Service as well some, some three years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us about the type of aircraft you operate at East of England. Well, we've got the EC-135, um, and from both charities' point of view, a very, very popular aircraft. Um, we have an excellent working relationship with the chief execs of the two charities, and they themselves have an excellent working relationship as well, and I'm really pleased that there's no, no competition around fundraising. There doesn't need to be, to be honest with you, Ed, because the area is that big 
that you know they can fundraise themselves and still keep these aircraft up in the air. And you know we, we're on the edge of London. We've got some people who live and work in London. Sorry, work in London, but live in parts of Hertfordshire and also parts of East Anglia. Are very very happy to donate to these aircraft. And um, overall, the system is working well. I've got a dedicated senior manager from my trust who manages manages special operational projects, and he's the link into this service for um, for the air ambulance charities and he works with them in terms of many of the operational things. My clinical director who's a consultant anaesthetist, um, she's one of my executive directors, works with the air ambulance charities on the clinical, clini their clinical governance issues as well. So broadly works very, very well. Okay. Well, I know, Hayden, I'm keeping you a long time. I think it's what, after 9 p.m. or yeah. 2100 uh, yeah. talking to you right now. And so I don't want to keep you uh, uh, much longer, but is there anything else that you'd like to tell us, uh, the, our listeners, about the Air Ambulance Services in the UK or the Air Ambulance Association? Yeah, well, what, what I would like to say, this has been an excellent, you know, sort of um, discussion. Thank you for your time. And um, I hope your listeners have got something out of it. And I would say, you know, have a look at our website. Just Google in Air Ambulance Association and, uh, you know, let's keep contact up. We're very, very keen to, to link into colleagues around the world. As I said earlier on, we've got a lot to offer, a lot to share, and uh, we are really keen to do that. You'll see yeah. details on the website of our AGM and our national conference. If people would like to come along, please, please let us know, and we would be very, very delighted to see people. Well, they don't even have to Google. I'll have that all on the show notes uh, with with links and also the uh, podcasts uh, that you're doing so that's uh, that's wonderful that'll all be in the show notes so Hayden thank you so much for being on the podcast and thanks also for providing such good background information on how the system works in the UK and you know how the association was set up I've learned a lot myself no, it's been my pleasure Ed and uh, thank you for your time and you have a good day Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206 350 0278. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. Stan's work can be found at RoomTuneEnterprise.com. Take care and fly safe. Thank you.